0: Welcome to the Thinking Christian Podcast, your weekly guide to solid Christian thinking on culture, science, faith, and Christian confidence, hosted by Tom Gilson. Hello, this is Tom Gilson for the Thinking Christian Podcast. I've been away for a while, several weeks now, actually. It may have caused you to wonder if this podcast had met the fate of so many others, a false start. I suppose that's still possible, but I've had a cough, and I've been really, really hoarse for weeks. Been to the right kinds of doctors to try to get it checked out. Best guess is that it was kicked off by an unusual side effect to some blood pressure medicine. And you can probably still hear some of that hoarseness in my voice, and I'll just mention it let you live with it. It's not as bad as it was. You wouldn't have wanted to hear me earlier. And the other thing that can happen with a podcast in its early days is that, and this would be true for me as well, is the whole idea that you'd be experimenting, trying to discover what works best. What's the best method? What's the best way to approach topics? What's the best way to schedule it? How long should the podcast be? And that kind of thing. I've had opportunity during this break to be rethinking that. I was going down one road where I was doing a read through the Gospel of Luke and looking at Jesus' uniqueness there. What I found was it didn't work as well as I expected it would. So I'm, at this point, moving back to what I expect and hope will be a weekly podcast on major topics having to do with Jesus, having to do with culture, having to do with faith, having to do with uh, whatever comes to mind, but all in the category of a Christ-centered thinking Christianity. I've just finished reading a a great book by Peter Jones called The Other Worldview, Exposing Christianity's Greatest Threat, published in 2015 by Kirkdale Press. The Other Worldview Jones is referring to in this book is what he calls one-ism, That's capital O-N-E, the number one, ism. It's almost exactly the same as what philosophers have long described as monism. M-O-N as in mono, also meaning one. Now, of course, he's contrasting that to the worldview of Christianity. Christianity, no surprise, is not oneism. It's twoism, capital T-W-O-I-S-M philosophers typically call this dualism. But I think maybe here we do see a reason why why Jones would have used a term other than the traditional ones, and that is the term dualism has an awful lot of different applications. And uh, by using his own term of art for it, twoism, he can describe this tuism and have us be thinking only about the twoism that he has in mind Whereas if he would had been talking about dualism, he would have had to scrape away a whole lot of other baggage from other kinds of dualisms than the one that he's talking about. So what is this one-ism? What is this two-ism? One-ism is the, the doctrine, the belief, the philosophical worldview that says essentially that there is one kind of thing in all of reality. An example would be the naturalistic viewpoint of most atheists in in America today, which is that the world, the universe, everything comprises matter and energy, which are actually one thing, as Einstein showed us, matter and energy. That's all there is. There is no spiritual reality. There is only physical reality. If we had a perfect physics, we would have a perfect understanding of all of reality because that's all there is to it. That's oneism in one of its manifestations, in contrast to that, the twoism of Christianity says that there is a God and there is a creation, and they are not the same thing. they are not remotely the same thing. God is eternal, God is infinite, God is the Creator, and when he created us. When he created the universe, when he created creation, he created it as something other than himself, something that he stands in a relationship with, but he is not the same as. And he stands in relationship with us as people, as as humans, as persons created in his image, but he is not the same as us. We are not the same as him. So that's just a couple examples. We're going to go further into the one but I want to Spend a little time with us thinking about Tuism and the the difference between God and us. I've taught this in groups before, and I've had people say, My brain hurts, and you'll see why. If your brain hurts in this exercise, be encouraged and don't let this scare you off. Their brain hurting is proof that you have got it, that you understand the point. You see, the doctrine of God as creator means that he is wholly other. He's completely set apart from his creation. He's a different order of being in every way. I've given a lot of hours to trying to sort that out in my thinking, and the best, uh, the best outcome, really, to, the best way to explain it is, just as I said, my brain has hurt. So here, uh, I'm going to give you a chance to try it yourself. I'm going to keep it down to three quick exercises. They might seem as I, uh, as I share them, almost as if I'm trying to get you to imagine yourself being God. The real point of this is to show you that such a thing is far more impossible than you probably realized. So here's the first exercise. If you can, uh, you may be driving, you may be walking, uh, but if you can sit down and close your eyes this will give you the best chance at getting the the outcome the feel the the understanding from this sit down if you can close your eyes if you can not if you're driving but but try try imagine yourself being alone i mean really alone as in there is nothing but you nothing exists but you all of reality is you oops i am going to guarantee this? You're making your first mistake already. You're imagining yourself being alone somewhere in space. That's not the way God is. That's not the way God was prior to creation. God couldn't have been alone in space. He hadn't created it yet. God was utterly, completely the only existence in all of reality. He was the only being in all of reality. Uh, More precisely, he is Always has been, always will be being itself. God is God is it. Prior to creation, God is all of it. There, there is no other. There's no space. There's no distance. There's no relationship outside of himself. There is relationship within the Trinity, but God is all that there is. And so it would be, if you're to succeed in imagining it, you would be imagining yourself as being all that there is and nothing around you not even a sense of a meaning to the word around you there is no such thing as around you okay that's first exercise second one kind of helps explain what i just said about nothing around you so you're alone <laughs> and and you're and you've decided to create something other than yourself so i'm going to suggest you start by creating space okay you're alone. You're thinking, okay, I'm going to create something. I'm going to call it space. And I guarantee you have just made your second mistake. You're trying to think of where you're going to put it. Where is space going to be in relationship to yourself? In front of you, behind you, beside you, around you? <laughs> you, you can't do that. You, you can't put space somewhere. There, there's no space to put it in. You can't put space somewhere unless there's space, and and there isn't. When God created space, he did something we cannot even imagine, which is he created a relationship of a different kind that ever existed before. So the third one, and this one will be just as quick. If there's no space outside yourself, you might have thought of putting space inside yourself so that when you've finished creating space, you're bigger than space. Well, no, you've made two mistakes there. See, the, the words inside and outside still require some space, which you're still trying to figure out where you're going to put, try to create. And you're thinking of putting it inside yourself? Oh, You can think of that, but it wouldn't be accurate of God because God doesn't have sides. He doesn't have an inside or an outside. God doesn't have parts. You know, if you move from one place to another in the space that he's created, that means that you're not moving from one part of God to another. You're moving. God is fully present everywhere you are, which, by the way, is one of the encouraging things that you can discover by thinking this through, that God didn't put space somewhere in himself in relationship to it. God is fully present everywhere you are. All of God is present where you are. That's not the same as the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, which says for Christians, God lives in us in a special way, but it certainly has some connection to it in, in the knowledge that wherever we are, God is fully there. But have you caught a picture here of how different God is from his creation? Uh, we, we could go on with this kind of exercise at length, but the point of it is that God is utterly transcendent, utterly distant, utterly distant utterly other completely unlike us we are completely unlike him there is a relationship there is a relationship but it's it's not a relationship of equals there's not a, a relationship of similarity in in the terms of the philosophers there's no ontological similarity god is completely other there are two things in reality monism is false if christianity is true Twoism is true. There is God, there is creation, and they are not the same kind of thing. Well, if your brain was hurting, we can give it a rest here. I'm going to move on to talk about the one-ism that Peter Jones speaks of in his book. Oh, and by the way, if your brain didn't hurt through that, it's because I rushed it. Uh, We we should take longer for this kind of an exercise. Or maybe it's because you had to be thinking of something else, doing something else, making sure you didn't run the car off the road or whatever. But if you'd had more time and if you really sat down and gave this the kind of imaginative thought, you would, again, experience the sense, I'm sure, of how unimaginably different God is. But let's move on. Peter Jones talks about one-ism. He puts it in context of Romans 125. I'll quote him. He says, These terms are my shorthand for what I believe the Apostle Paul is getting at when he describes the heart of idolatry and falsehood as exchanging the truth for the lie and exchanging worship of the Creator for worship of the creature. One-ism is paganism, really, or or it could be pantheism or it could be what we in America call Eastern religion, or it could even be, as I described earlier, anti-religious scientific materialism or naturalism. Oneism says that reality is basically one thing from top to bottom, and, and, and all these worldviews actually do share that view. For the religious monist, the one thing is spirit or Brahman or some universal transcendent principle. It's a spirituality that erases distinctions. Evil is illusion, or maya. Or as in Star Wars, you, you we know that the idea was that good and evil, light and dark, are two sides of one principle, the force. And neither one of them could exist without the other, because they're really the same thing viewed from two different angles. There's just one thing, one-ism. And so for the Eastern religionist, a lot of the times, ultimate understanding, ultimate uh, they don't use the word salvation, but the analog to salvation would be uh, that it comes in knowing that you are a god, that you are one with the ultimate, one with the transcendent. Of course, for the non-religious, I already mentioned this, the one thing is matter and energy interacting by what we call natural law, and ultimate understanding would come with with an ultimate physics. Whether it's religious or non-religious, the point remains that distinctions mean nothing. That's, that's a little overstated. Ultimately, there are no distinctions. There are distinctions in, in phenomena. There are distinctions in the way the world appears. But the truth of reality underneath it all is that there's really just one thing. So that's why you can find people saying that rivers deserve human rights. You can hear people saying the gender binary must be broken. You'll hear them saying that one moral system is as good as another moral system. And since hierarchies are illegitimate, we're all one thing, no one can tell another person what to believe. We can all choose our own truths. These are all natural consequences or outworkings of the doctrine or the philosophy or the ideology of one-ism. Now, Jones holds Carl Jung responsible for most of this. A lot of the book is about Carl Jung and his history, his beliefs, his philosophies, his influence, which really, in the 21st century, has come to outstrip that of Sigmund Freud. Jung was an analytical psychologist in the sense of Freud, but so much different in a lot of ways, much more spiritual much more inclined to matters of the transcendent. Jung looked to things like archetypes and uh, the collective unconscious, things that were beyond individuals. Jung had a way of putting a scientific shine or a scientific veneer on an essentially pagan view of reality. The modern view of psychological health Because of Jung is based in large part on a paganism-inspired account of the way the world works. That's a little bit disturbing. Not all psychology is like that. I have greatly benefited from great Christian counseling, and I'm a strong believer in it, but I am not a believer in pagan psychology. Jones focuses on Jung throughout the book, but he calls on other thinkers as well, like Mircea Eliade, who tells us that in today's view of being human, Quote, the ultimate goal of individuation or maturation is the removal of opposites. Personal desire, even fantasy, become the root to science-based psychological wholeness. Now here he does two things that are worth noting. One is he speaks in terms of science, but he also talks about um, maturity having to do with the removal of opposites. This is oneism in action. The capital G, capital W, the great work of the noted Satanist and pagan Alistair Crowley is, quote, the uniting of opposites, the uniting of the soul with God, of the microcosm with the macrocosm, of the female with the male, end quote. Does that sound familiar? Have we seen that coming to the fore in today's ideologies? Of course we have. He mentions Francis Fox Piven. Who was a former mentor to Barack Obama and embraced a, quote, wholesale program of human identity politics, end quote. Now, that, as we all know, is an ideology that's driving a whole lot of the the cultural changes, the political changes in the world. Remember that Jones wrote this in 2015 when I'm not sure that a whole lot of us were talking identity politics yet. The book came out, or at least was finished. Uh, well, before Bruce slash Caitlyn Jenner made his slash her appearance on the cover of Vanity Fair and kicked off the hugely rolling, fast movement of transgenderism, that whole ideology of identity politics comes out of oneism. I'm pretty sure that he would find oneism at the heart of the, again, much more recently discussed. And higher in currency in terms of cultural Marxism and, of course, Black Lives Matter. So, how does that fit into oneism? How does intersectionality fit into oneism? Intersectionality was really not anywhere on the scene for most of us to see in 2015. It would have been talked about in liberal faculty circles. Oneism is one thing. There's nothing quite so fragmenting as intersectionality, the kind of thing that takes one thing and divides it into many. Intersectionality is the doctrine that persons experiences are defined by the intersection of their race, gender, ability, status, sexuality, age, and who knows what else. So they, they will speak, it's not just your experience as a black person, but your experience as a black woman and it's not just your experience as a disabled person, and it's not just your experience maybe as a Native American, it's your experience as a disabled person who is a Native American. It seems the opposite of oneism's doctrine that all things are one thing, but it's still part of a larger package. We call it cultural Marxism. I won't get into that, but it's, it's a package that calls for an end to white privilege And as Jones puts it, it calls for denouncing, quote, sustainable racism, end quote, which is, uh, and quoting again here now, which is immediately associated with the religion of the white founders of America, Christianity. Jones continues, saying, the progressives understand that the depth and power of traditional Christianity must be undermined and eliminated if total equality is to be achieved, end quote. But again, how does this fit into one It's the idea that distinctions should be erased, but they're not being erased. So we need to identify the distinctions more clearly, as they seem to be, so that we can make them go away. Now, part of the whole doctrine of Black Lives Matter is, is that we can't make the distinctions go away. White people, in particular, will always be racist. That's a strong Committed doctrine of Black Lives Matter and of the anti-racist movement, as they call themselves. What we're seeing here is where oneism hits a wall of unpracticability. That is, it's a it's a false worldview, and the more they try to make it make sense, the more likely they are to run into internal contradictions. Let's get rid of all distinctions by identifying them more clearly good, we can work on them now. Except, and I'm, I'm not overstating the case here, you get books like Abram Kendi's book, and they will tell you that white people are just incapable forever of understanding and overcoming their own racism. Contradictions, yeah, it's, it's part of the whole difficulty in oneism because you cannot make a false worldview work. Scientific materialism, fails to work. We won't go there, though. This is all just a taste of thesis. I'm just summarizing a book. He says, quoting again, there are but two worldviews, one-ism and two-ism, end quote. And I'd say if there's anything to be criticized in the book, it may be that he gives inadequate attention to the naivety by which many persons embrace their ideologies. Like cultural Marxism or intersectionality or even scientific materialism. Uh, I can certainly believe that those worldviews have roots in oneism, but I doubt many of their proponents would recognize it for that because they just haven't thought it through to the proper ideological and historical roots. So there's a lot of oneism going on that is unrecognized, but it is, I think, a pretty good case that there are but two worldviews, one-ism and twoism. And 2 is chiefly in our culture practice in Christianity. I haven't mentioned Judaism and Islam. I should uh, not fail to do that. They are twoist religions too. The Abrahamic religions believe that reality is basically two things. But I'm going to stick with Christianity here. It is the worldview, the religion that I know, and it's the one that I embrace. I'll stick with that. And Jones is certainly correct in standing Christianity up against oneism. Even among the Abrahamic religions, Christianity's opposition to oneism is unique because Jesus Christ himself, his very life on earth, stands as a denial of oneism. That's one of the cool things about Jesus. You see, Jesus was different, more different than most of us realize. He was extraordinary. (laughs) He was extraordinary beyond even Christian's usual view of him. I don't mean that he's greater than the way we describe him in our doctrinal formulations. He was God in the flesh, worker of great miracles, teacher of unparalleled truth, conqueror of death, savior of the world. Of course all that's true. But what I mean beyond that is that there's a tangible, kind of touchable, superlative uniqueness to Jesus that we can connect with directly in the accounts of Jesus, the Gospels. Jesus was different. I mean, he was hugely different, incomparably different. In my book, Too Good to be False, I tell of many of these differences. His self-sacrificial love, for example, is unmatched in story or in history. He's the only one ever to have had such power and yet use it only for others. His brilliance is without compare in both his teaching and in his disputations. And speaking of his teaching, can you think of anyone else who could have taught and demonstrated the hardest virtue of all, love for one's enemies, and do it the way he did? No one else comes close. He is great from the moment of his first emergence on the scene or even before it in the announcements of his birth. He remains great with no faltering, no failing, all the way through his arrest, trial, torture, and execution, and, of course, in his resurrection. Now, I opened this podcast speaking of the unfathomable otherness of God, and in many ways we see Jesus displaying that same otherness Old Testament prophets and heroes did miracles, but they did it in the name of God. Jesus did it in his own name. Old Testament prophets spoke in God's name. Jesus spoke in his own name. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus assumed a status equal with God, even while speaking of a hierarchy of authority in the Godhead. Oh, and by the way, from this we learn that difference in power status should never imply a difference in worth, but rather it's, it's an agreed distribution of authority among equals. I said should. I emphasize that. It's a principle that gets violated really often in practice. But Jesus is equal in status to the Father, not to us. He says we can be his friends if we do what he commands. If we do what he commands, that's not equal status. Only his great love and his truth and his obvious authority could lead anybody to say yes to a friendship like that. Yet millions or even billions have done so. Again, Jesus is not equal to us. He stands as an obvious refutation of the one that says everything is equal and everyone is equal. He stands as a one-man barrier against one-ism. He is God, we are not. It is he who made us and not we ourselves. He is to be worshipped, we must not be. And, my goodness, let's thank God for Jesus coming to us in this 2 reality. Just to remind you, we saw just how unreachably unlike us God is. The chasm between us is infinite. He made us in his image. So we're like him in some ways, but in other ways, he is remotely unlike us and distant. Or he would be, had he not chosen to bridge that gap, which he did in Jesus. Jesus came as one of us, not so that we could be like God in his uh, in, in the essence of what he is, not for that, but so that we could relate to God, not so that we could be Absorbed into God or united with God in the sense that the Eastern religions expect, and in their oneist uh, philosophy they would say eventually we would become one with God. There's no such thing as us becoming one with God. We're too different. But he brought us into relationship with him so that rather than being one with God in some kind of a absorption sense, We can have a loving relationship with him. He is still God. We are still us. Our identity continues. We are who we are. And in Christ, if we will accept what Christ has done for us, we can continue in that loving relationship with God forever. The gap is bridged. And I haven't even talked about how Jesus bridged the gap of sin. That's a different topic, an important one, just not the one that we're talking about this time. Jesus Christ has rescued us from hopeless, forever, infinite distance from God. He has brought us into relationship with God by becoming one of us, and by living among us, by teaching for us, by dying for us, by rising for us. He's brought us into relationship. And in fact, I think we concentrate so much on Jesus' rescue from our sin, which is certainly appropriate. We, we need to concentrate on that. But we can miss out on the other great thing that he did for us, which is to provide the relational bridge between finite creatures like us and the infinite God who created us. We live in a two-ist reality. Oneism doesn't work. It fragments. It falls apart into pieces. Jesus himself shows that we live in a reality that's two-ist, to use Peter Jones's words. So I'm going to close here by just recommending to you Peter Jones's book, The Other Worldview, exposing Christianity's greatest threat. If you want to know more about this one-ism and two-ism, you'll get it from him a lot more than you will from me in a short message like this. I'm also going to recommend to you my book, Too Good to be False, How Jesus' Incomparable Character Reveals His Reality, because in their you'll see how Jesus has brought us back into relationship with this transcendent creator, infinite God, who loves us infinitely. So I hope you pick up a copy of Too Good to be False. I'm Tom Gilson for the Thinking Christian Podcast. Thank you for listening. The Thinking Christian Podcast is copyright by Thomas Gilson. For more information, visit the Thinking Christian blog at thinkingchristian.net.